Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. Mark Alford got a late start to elected service after several decades as a broadcast journalist. And now the Republican from Raymore is settling into a U.S. House where his party maintains a slim majority. Alford joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to discuss the fallout from the slim vote to raise the nation's debt ceiling and his agenda for Fort Leonard Wood. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equal. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me via phone, he is the congressman for Missouri's 4th Congressional District. Mark Alford, that's all Ford and no Chevy. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us for the first time. Uh, The 4th District takes in portions of central and western Missouri. I don't know if you knew this, congressman, but it is wider than the state of Connecticut. So I think that's a that's a fact that you can rub in the faces of Senators Blumenthal and Murphy, by the way. <laughs> it is a big district, and, and we're out traveling today. It's 24 counties. During the campaign, I put more than 70,000 miles on this Ford Expedition that we're in right now. Well, I'm sure because of used cars being valuable, your car is still valuable, uh, <laughs> despite, the mileage, despite the mileage. But one of the places that is in your district is Fort Leonard Wood, which is in Pulaski County, that is in St. Louis Public Radio's coverage area. And to start off this conversation, I kind of want to get a sense of what your agenda is to make sure that important military installation remains an important military installation. Well, that's a great topic to start out with, Jason, because Fort Leonard Wood is very dear to our hearts in the 4th Congressional District. It was dear to Ike Skelton, who has uh, held this seat for many years, and then his predecessor, Vicki Hartzler, uh, she fought hard for Fort Leonard Wood, and in the same way on the House Armed Services Committee, I'm fighting uh, equally hard for Fort Leonard Wood. Uh, it is an, uh, a great base. I, we were out there uh, two months ago. Uh, we got a great tour uh, there are some issues out there that, that need to be addressed. Uh, 80,000 personnel go through the training programs there, and there's a variety of them um, at Fort Leonard Wood. And, and there's some basic needs, too. Uh, housing is one of them. Uh, we have uh, put on our request for the NDA, the National Defense Authorization Act, a, a boost of $50 million for privatized housing on the base there. Families, young families like yourself, want to come there and they want to have an enjoyable experience. We're not trying to build the Taj Mahal there. We're just trying to make it a 
comfortable, enjoyable place where, where families can feel welcome and prosper as a family uh, while the, uh, the uh, soldier is getting his or her training there. And so we think privatized housing and upgrading that, some of it's not been upgraded since the 1960s. Uh, we toured some of these uh, facilities. They're outdated and uh, they're not efficient. They cost more to maintain them over the long run and uh, maintenance costs and heating costs, utility costs, than it would be in the long term to build something new and uh, have something nice. And so we're pushing for that for our families. We've also uh, pushed and already got some action, believe it or not, on a new gun range. There are nine out there. And as you kind of can imagine, uh, one of the things you need to do to train to be a, a soldier is, is to learn how to be a good marksman. So uh, with one of those ranges out of basically it, it's inoperable. It is so outdated, they shut it down. And so in a surge capacity, especially if we see ourselves in a conflict situation with perhaps uh, Russia or China, God forbid, uh, we're going to need to make sure that we have all the options available. And so we invited during a committee hearing two months ago, the Undersecretary of Army to come out to Fort Leonard Wood. She did, she saw it firsthand and they have now moved money over. I think it's almost $6 million to build a new shooting range. So while we're a freshman, uh, we are, I think, making little differences, common sense differences for Fort Leonard Wood and also for Whiteman Air Force Base, which we're about to drive nearby here. It's home of the B-2 stealth bomber. There are a number of congressmen out there that are probably in a similar situation as you, where they have a military installation in their district. They're probably going to be pressuring the executive branch for time, attention, and money to their facility. How are you able to make sure that the Army pays close attention to the needs of Fort Leonard Wood, when, as you mentioned, I I know that you think of yourself as, like, very persuasive and all-powerful, but you are a (laughs) first-year congressman, and your your influence is not as high as somebody who's been there for a while. I sit on the front row of Hask, and I'm one of the last people to ask a question of the witnesses. But uh, the way I do it is I try to come across as just like an everyday, ordinary person. I, I, I'm naturally curious, having having been a, a journalist in my previous life. And so I ask uh, questions that may not be ordinary questions, but try to get to the heart of the matter to get people to really uh, think about their answers and not just give political uh politically correct answers or answers that are maybe just promoting uh, their party or the administration. So uh, I think that's how we were successful in getting the Undersecretary of Army uh, to come out there and see for herself the situation at hand at at, uh, Fort Leonard Wood. When it comes to Whiteman Air Force Base, it's a little bit easier in that the B-2 stealth bomber is part of the nuclear triad. And I'm on the uh, Sea Power Subcommittee, which oversees that. We oversee all the Sea Power um, uh, assets, ships, that sort of thing. Um, but we also, that's the nuclear triad, the nuclear strike, Global Strike Command is under that. Uh, General Boussier, who I've had contact with, he's over Whiteman Air Force Base as well. And it's a very important structure. It's, uh, you know, we have a, a, a great fleet right now of B-2s, but they are aging. Uh, we are modernizing that with the B-21 stealth bomber. It's being built right now in Palmdale, California. The appropriated 
number of planes, jets right now is at 100. We are hoping to go up to 147. And we were out there two months ago, and it's still a top secret program. They are going to, they did one rollout on December 3rd. And the, if you go to, you know, Google it or search it, you can see pictures of the front of the plane. The, the back of the jet is still top secret classified. But it, we are building these to be a deterrent uh, against forces like the communist Chinese government. And as we get into more serious times where China uh, is raising its head and, and um, trying to make inroads and, and get their footprint in the Western Hemisphere, but also threatening um, a conflict with Taiwan to invade Taiwan, uh, we've got to be ready. We've got to be the best deterrent that we can be. And so I think I, I know for a fact that these B-21s, uh, when they get into production and uh, we are going to get the second wave of those at Whiteman Air Force Base, I know for a fact that they're going to be a greater deterrent than even what we have now. When you've, I, I actually am glad you mentioned that topic because one of the reasons that you voted against the uh, debt ceiling package was you were worried that it would constrict defense spending too much to have the United States keep up militarily with China. Can you kind of elaborate on that point? Because I, I have a follow up sure. question based off what you're going to say. Sure. Well, look. When we passed the Limit Save Grow Act last month, it was for a one-year raise of the debt ceiling, $1.5 trillion, and it was going to increase defense spending. Uh, and there were some other things in it that ended up not being it. There were some good things in it, but I voted no on that because my constituents in the 4th Congressional District, we uh, did a survey of 50,000 constituents, and uh, they wanted me to vote no. Uh, the... Uh, overwhelming phone calls and emails that we got into our office were like, I don't know, 12 to 1, uh, no to yes on on voting for that. And so when I campaigned for this office, it was, I, I let people know, this is not my office. Uh, it was Vicki Hartzer's before, and it will be someone's after I'm gone. Uh, this is your office, and I'm here to vote for you. I'm here to be the strongest, loudest, most consistent, unwavering voice I can be for the 4th Congressional District. So they let me know loud and clear. Uh, that they wanted me to vote no. But one of the big reasons, personally, I felt um, my conscience led me to vote no was because really it amounts to the, a cut, especially in the year 25, 2025, where it only uh, has a 1% cap of increase for defense spending. When you figure into a fl inflation, that amounts to a big cut. We are going to lose seven ships uh, in the next year or so, they're going to be decommissioned. We need to be building ships. We don't need to be losing ships. And so we need to be fighting for every dollar that we can to make sure that our defense is strong, that we are rebuilding our military, that we have the most current uh, cutting-edge technology in space and missile weaponry, uh, in tanks, in, in ships, and that we do a good job in, in trying to recruit uh, and retain our military in the armed services. So that's, that's the big reason. Um, we've got to keep our nation strong. Uh, the, the best deterrent we can be to keep peace in the world is to have a strong military. So I, I certainly understand the point that you want to make sure you're not falling. And by your, I mean, the United States is not falling behind against China. 
But I've heard arguments when you when we're talking about like aid to Ukraine that like Europe should be stepping up and building up their military defenses and providing more aid to Ukraine. Which is absolutely right. Yeah. Which, which, you know, I've said on this show many times, I'm half Ukrainian. I obviously have my sympathies to Ukraine over Russia, but I don't find that argument to be wholly without merit. Could you take a similar argument that at the same time that the United States is building up its military readiness in Asia, we should be pressuring countries like South Korea, Japan, Australia, Indonesia to be doing the same so there's a united front against Chinese military dominance in that area. I agree with that. I don't know the exact figures of what they're doing or not doing. Uh, I'm glad you said that. I need to check on that, so I'll be more informed on that. Uh, I do know that we have an agreement from the 1970s, I think it was uh, 1979, that we will help in Taiwan's self-defense against China should anything happen. Um, I don't know if other countries have that same agreement, but 65% 65% of the world's goods travel through the Taiwan Straits in the South China Sea. If China were to invade Taiwan, 65% of the world's goods go through the Straits of Taiwan and the South China Sea. The supply chain issues that would be a result of that invasion would make COVID look like a cakewalk. Only 5% of the goods that you now see on your store shelves would be there. We've got to make sure that we are the strongest deterrent we can be, that China is not going to get some crazy idea to invade Taiwan, and uh, we, we need to keep them at bay. Now, we need to get others involved as well. We, we do. Uh, we are counting, if something should happen, on, on South Korea, on Australia, on our partners uh, in, in that region to help us militarily. But they also, I think, should be helping us uh, to help Taiwan get ready to stave off uh, a potential invasion. I think that was one of the big mistakes we made. When it came to Ukraine, we did not get the presidential drawdown uh, equipment, armaments there soon enough. I think President Biden showed weakness on the world stage. Bullies feed off weakness. I think that's exactly what Putin did. You combine that uh, bleak uh, picture that our administration as president put forward by the way that he pulled out of Afghanistan and left 13 of our service members there to die. Uh, I think it showed weakness. I think Putin took advantage of that. I've actually been to Eastern Europe. I was there in February. We went there to check on uh, our NATO allies in Poland, uh, in Romania. Uh, we also went to Greece. We saw firsthand the armaments that were being brought in from all over the world and how they're being cataloged and actually making it on trucks that would come in from Ukraine into the airport there in Warsaw and then traverse back across the border. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, as much as we could that the armaments were getting to the proper place uh, and having a, a, an effect on deterring and, and pushing back Putin. Um, one of the things I was most impressed about, though, is when we met with defense ministers in Poland and uh, Romania, the level of dedication, the amounts that those countries were putting in, uh, not just with their blood, sweat and tears, but also monetarily. Yeah. And not to interrupt, but like it is striking to me that Poland 
is more philosophically and practically aiding Ukraine than Germany, which is bigger and has a bigger economy. But we all know the reason for that, because Germany is so dependent on Russian natural gas that their decision making has been stunted compared to someone like Poland, which has not been a friend of Russia for many years. But sorry to interject, but I'm sure you may have a point. No, that's a great point. I was going to bring up Germany because that's one of my biggest disappointments. And you're totally right. They should never have become dependent on Putin's natural gas. Um, The problem is, is that Joe Biden and this administration has made uh, has demonized fossil fuels. They're trying to get rid of natural gas and and uh, gasoline and diesel and and put us all on electric vehicles. And so by doing so, we weaken our our supply of that and our production of that. Uh, We should be supplying Germany, not Russia. And so because they are dependent upon Russia, uh, they're having to cave in and not give the uh, amount of money, amount of the the support that really Ukraine needs and deserves from Germany. Poland, though, is fired up. I tell you what, uh, they are ready to defend their country. They are ready to defend that region. They're ready to defend their NATO partners. Their big concern is that if Ukraine does fall, then Moldova will be next, the, the Balkans, and then Poland. And uh, it would just be a a fall of dominoes that would tip the world stage of power. So uh, going back to the debt ceiling vote for a bit, you did vote no, but it seemed like you were that wasn't super unusual. There were other people that decided to vote no as well. Um, But it seems that there's a subset of your caucus that has become so angry about this that the House right now is kind of in this interesting standoff, which I'm sure will eventually get resolved. More broadly, though, do you think that your caucus can like reunite and coalesce around the the, the House leadership to, you know, continue to get things done? I know it's not an easy situation because the majority is not that big, but it seems like there's been some pretty noticeable fallout from that vote that's affecting the majority's ability to do stuff right now. I certainly hope so. I'm optimistic that we can. I've I've been kind of practicing. We every week we have a conference meeting, and it goes on for about an hour and a half in the basement of the Capitol building there. And uh, everyone is allowed to get up and speak for a minute. I I don't usually speak at those because I'm a freshman. I'm I'm there to listen uh, this year, but I feel something uh, as a freshman just because. And so I've kind of been practicing, you know, what I'm going to say, but here's what's on my heart, okay? I'm just going to share with you what I'm thinking. I've been married 34 years. You don't get, you don't stay married and happily married 34 years unless you've been to marriage counseling. Our conference needs a marriage counselor almost. We've got to reestablish trust, uh, appreciation for one another, even if you have differing viewpoints. Um I think there are some definite trust issues there on both sides between leadership and uh, the Freedom Caucus. Uh, I want to see us work things out in conference and not take it to the House floor. And if we're doing things out of selfish motivation and selfish ambition instead of for the good of our country, then we need to look closely at our hearts and figure out and come to that realization um, 
there are look, you don't get to Congress without having some sort of an ego. All right. So you've got um, what do we have? Two hundred and twenty something people down in this basement room in this conference. There's a lot of egos down there. Um, we've just got to make sure that our, the decisions we're making and the and the direction that we're heading is not based on selfish ambition, but it's based on what is good for the American people. We cannot risk losing the even slim majority that we have in the House now. We we control only one half of one third of the government, and we've been able to make some positive changes in the last five months. But we can do so much more if we have a strong majority in the House, if we have a majority in the Senate, and I'm hoping a, a, we take back the White House uh, in 2024. And when we do, we're going to have to work together as a party uh, to make sure that we make those changes that we've not been willing to make in the past. I've been following the Missouri General Assembly for about 16 or 17 years. And one of the things that's become very obvious is when, you know, an even numbered year comes around, like election year pressures affect how the Missouri legislature acts. I'm interested to know if your caucus federally is going to be influenced by this large GOP primary for president. Do you think that anything that the presidential candidates are doing or saying is going to affect how your House caucus operates or what policies you pursue? That's a very good question. I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think in the next, uh, well, what we have 17 months till the um, presidential election, even less time before the, the primaries. I think the first debate start on the GOP side in two months, three months, um, and we have how many now in the race already? Almost 10? Yeah, 10 or 11. Uh, I know the governor of North Dakota got in. I know vice former president, vice president Pence has gotten in. I, I, I think that there's kind of an assumption that former President Trump is the, the runaway front runner right now. But like, you know, nobody expected him to win in 2016. So assuming something this early seems kind of like a fool's errand in many respects. I, I think what you're going to start seeing is as representatives and senators start lining up behind certain candidates. Um, that's the only division that I can see that might come out of that. But, you know, I think all of our candidates uh, in the GOP want the same thing. They want America to, America to succeed. They want America to be prosperous. They want less government regulation. They don't want uh, a two-sided justice system. Uh, we want fairness and equality, not equity necessarily, and and we want to, we just want to be a uh, we want America to be great again, and we want Americans to be great again. We want to inspire people to that greatness, and we want to everyone to be successful. So I think you know I think if we can rally around some of the positive things that President Reagan, when I was a a kid growing up, that that he led us to even the, during those dark times in the late 70s, early 80s, when inflation was much higher, uh, double, almost triple, I guess it was triple, uh, uh, interest rates were. Um, that was a big hardship on the American people. And yet President Reagan was able to inspire us to greatness. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, everywhere I go, I try to, to plant those seeds. That the best days are still ahead of us, of us as a nation. Ronald Reagan once said that uh, 
you know, our nation, I think, is more divided than ever before as well. And he said he had an answer for this. He said um, something to affect that the time has come for us to realize that we need God more than he needs us. It's time to realize that we need to reassert our trust in him and turn to him for the healing of America. I think if we can get back to some common themes of what our country used to be, um, Norman Rockwell America instead of the Rocky Horror Picture Show that we're living in right now, I think we're all going to be a lot better off. Well, Congressman, thank you so much for your time. And I will admit that I am a big fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, so I'm I'm not sure if, I'm not sure which one I would like, but I, I understand your overall point. And we'll we'll have you back in the future to talk more issues. Uh, but we really appreciate your time. I appreciate yeah, continue. I appreciate the conversation. Just you know, a lot of interviews that we do, you just have to give a little sound bites and you're <laughs> off to the next interview. But I like having conversations. We have lost the art of listening in America. We are too busy yelling at one another. And when we can sit down and talk things out, we're all going to be much better off. Which is why a podcast format is good for this, uh, because, you know, it is a little bit more conversational. But before we send you off, Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Congressman, how could people follow you on social media or learn more about what you're doing as a member of Congress? Our social media accounts on the congressional side are at Rep Mark Alford. Uh, we also have Mark Alford KC. I've uh, got a big uh, following or audience, or I, I call it just a collection of friends, actually. And not all friends, but if you go to Mark Alford KC on Twitter and uh, Facebook, a uh, lot of information there. We do a uh, a lot of information. We have a little weekly newscast that we do from Washington called the Capitol Recap. I still can't get the news out of my blood. I go behind the scenes and talk to people making news and kind of give the uh, listeners and viewers an inside look at what goes on in Washington. Well, make sure to check those out. And until next time, so long. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.